want you to open in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Isaiah 11, verse 9. Isaiah 11, verse 9. As a dad, I can relate to this. It says, a father is a man who carries photographs where his money used to be. You hear me? Yeah. However, I've also heard it said that happiness is when your neighbor takes 600 pictures for slides of his trip to Europe and discovers his lens cap was on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though, we all love pictures as long as they're not 600 from our neighbor, right? Um, But we love pictures. And recently, we have been talking about the big picture of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and how that impacts us. And, and we have looked and searched through the scriptures, and we have discovered this truth that the mystery of God will one day be accomplished. Can you bring me down just a little bit, Sam? And in this discovery that, that this mystery of God will be accomplished, we realize this is the extent that is in Romans 16.26, in which all nations will believe and obey. And, and, and generally speaking, in America today, there is a negative view of the progress, the advancement, and, and truly the set purpose of God for his kingdom before Christ comes back. And, and, and I have awesome news, spoiler alert, like I said last week, that this is going to be spreading throughout the earth. I truly believe the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is triumphant. And that there will be a coming global revival. And my prayer is, may it happen in my generation. And if it doesn't happen in my generation, then God, make me one who is excellent at passing the baton to that generation that will see this. And so we have been looking at the big picture. And that is what what I'm going to call global revival. We saw it, there's probably two dozen or more scripture passages, and we looked at less than 10 last week, that speak of this Old Testament and New Testament. We looked at the last two weeks, actually. Now what I want to do is I want us to dial in a little bit here and focus more on the small picture. That's That's the title of the sermon today, the small picture. We've been looking at the big picture. We all love pictures, right? But now we want us to, we want us, we want to see the small picture. You know, when someone paints a picture, when they're done, uh, it's amazing. You know, when Lisa shows us the pictures that she does, and you're wondering, how did you do that? You know, and you step back and you see this melding of fluorescent paints and, and, and all kinds, and it's, it's, it's captivating, it's beautiful. But when you ask her, so how long did it take you to do this? She was really honest with you. It took her months. And when someone paints, they don't just paint a big picture. They paint the big picture by a lot of small details. You see? When you look at a Thomas Kincaid painting, it's called The Painter of Light, it, it's the impression is one of beauty. It's one of light and hope. It's not dark, generally. And what you notice in the details, when you look at the various aspects and zero in on the, as- the details of his paintings, you can begin to see how, when you step back, you see this light and why they call him the painter of light. So what I want us to do is, as we have seen this global revival on a large scale, a big picture, the question then is, how will that impact my world, where I'm at, what I'm doing, my church. Because if God is bringing revival throughout this earth, he's going to do it by bringing revival to local churches. So then the question is, what does that look like? So are you there with me in Isaiah 11.9? And this is a passage of scripture we looked at two weeks ago. And it says, it, it says, for the earth will be full, future tense, will be full of what? The knowledge of the glory 
of the Lord, even as the waters cover the seas. Now, if you've looked at a sea recently, as it washes above shore, uh, upon the shore, is there any part of the sea where there is no water? No, there absolutely is not. Even if we might suggest that instead of the sea, he's referring to the sea basins, the sea basins are full. As a matter of fact, on average, in the Pacific Ocean, the sea is generally about two miles deep. When you start looking at the Aleutian trenches and, and some of those other trenches, the, those trenches are four miles deep, so about six miles deep. That is full, church, of water. And even as the seas or sea basins are full of water everywhere, even so the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that when he talks about the earth being full of the knowledge of the glory of God, he is not just simply referring to, oh, I heard the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Oh, I heard of the testimony of this miracle or that miracle. Oh, I've heard, and, and it is simply head knowledge. I would suggest to you that the knowledge that he is referring to here is not just, I know about this, but it is an experienced knowledge. When the New Testament talks about the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about a relationship there. He's not just saying, hey, you, I know you guys know about Jesus. No, he's saying, I know that you know about him, you know him, and you have experienced him. This is what he is getting at when he talks about knowledge. And I would suggest to you that is what he's referring to here. Experiencing then the glory of God. That the experience and therefore the intimate knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth even as the waters fill or cover the seas. And so my question then is, what is this glory? What is this glory? If you were to turn to Psalm 72, and by the way, we are going to be covering a number of scripture passages here. <laughs> we're not just going to be looking at one main one, but actually a number of them. Um, I, I am going to move through them rather quickly because I am going to take us from the large picture to the small picture that may take some time, but we need to grasp or grapple with this concept of the glory of God and what is it. And I am going to just let you know right up front, spoiler alert, we are only going to be able to get a hazy picture of what this is. Because when the Bible many times talks about the glory of God, it is not specific or clear. It comes to us in physical pictures or analogies. Much as the light of the sun would be analogous to the glory of God. Well, what does that look like in the spiritual realm? We can understand what it is in the physical. Okay, the light emanates from the sun. The sun is comprised of many, many atoms and in their nuclear fission producing heat and light and we are warmed by that light. But really, what is light? And, and even, even physicists, they're still grappling, what is light? And how does it behave? What does it do? And, and even so, we are only going to be able to get a taste of what this glory of God is. But I'm going to assure you, we will be able to get some understanding. And that glory and the experience of God's glory, there will come a day in which it will cover the sea. And my prayer is, God, may your glory and the experience of your glory be here in this church, as well as every church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to do that, what is this glory? And, and, and how is it that we experience it? So are you there in Psalm 72? And in verse 19, I mean, we're going to read in verse 19, but understand the context here. I read to you two weeks ago in verse 8, it says, He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, all kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. And we realize that this is going to take place in the context of this age and not in some other age. 
the gospel, that is, excuse me, the, the mystery of God that is accomplished does so before the return of Christ, which is heralded by the seventh angel's trumpet. We, we saw that in Revelation 10 and 11. And so now, this is the, the, the con- verse 19 is in the context of this concept, if you will, of global revival or the knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth. And it says, praise be to his glorious name. May the earth, excuse me, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. Amen. I mean, it's not just one amen. Amen and amen. And it is, it, this psalm ends on the sense of triumphal truth. May, as if this is the heart of God, that the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now, turn with me now to Numbers chapter 14. And for those of you who have the NIV, such as myself, I make an apology up front because. The verb that's used here, fill, the NIV, for some reason, puts it in the present tense, and it is not. It is in the future tense. There's a clear distinction between the Hebrew in the present tense, it uses a participle, and the future tense. But the NIV, I think the reason why the NIV, and I'm guessing, but I think the reason why it uses the present tense in this verse, Numbers 14.21, is because of this sense of certainty, and you'll You'll get that, I think, when I read it. Verse 21, it says, Nevertheless, as surely as I live. That's pretty certain, isn't it? Moses lives. He's standing before them talking. He's alive. That's pretty certain. And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. And it goes on and talks about how his judgment will come. I'm reading this just for this phrase here. I think the NIV says in the present tense because to put it in the future, he's saying as certainly as I'm going to, as certainly as the glory of God will fill the earth, so I will judge them. So something that's supposed to happen in the future is certain, and it's as certain as what he's about. And so they grapple with that, and they say he must mean the present tense. But no, it truly is the future. In the future, he is saying that the whole earth will be filled with his glory. So what is glory? What is God's glory? Let's, let's just look at that for a, a moment. What is this glory? And now, if you were to remember some sermons ago when, when we touched on, went through the chap, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, what we saw there was that God's glory was being manifested or reflected in us, that actually our entire goal in life is to reflect and deflect God's glory. When Christ is seen in us and we reflect his glory, his character, and others may praise us, we deflect that to him. All right? And and we actually see that in the Sermon on the Mount when they will see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's deflecting glory. In Romans 8, we see the character of God transforming us. That is God's glory. Those that he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He is transforming them from glory to glory. Jesus' glory manifested in us. So we saw there that in that sense, God's glory was his attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and so on. And that is being seen in us, that Jesus is living in us and through us, and people see Jesus in us. And that is our purpose in life, living as Jesus lived, him living through me. But glory is more than this. Actually, if you were to look, we see it clearly in the English how the noun glory is closely related to the verb glorify. It's the same way in Greek. The Greek word is doxa. the, the, The Greek verb is doxadzo. And so one 
is integrally connected with the other. So just pause for a moment. God's glory, how is that associated with glorify? Glorify means praise. And this is what I'm going to tell you. As we go through this, I think you'll see this, that when God manifests or radiates his glory in my life, it will always do this. It will cause me to glorify him. Now, I realize that's kind of a vague connection there. But whenever God, when the sun radiates its light, we feel the warmth, especially in summertime here in Florida. We feel the warmth, and it, 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 it warms us. Unless we don't like it, and we go inside either our house or our car and crank up the AC, wipe the sweat from our brow, and enjoy the cool, the, the cool air conditioning. And so I guess there's an exception that not everyone who experiences God's glory will glorify him, even in this sense, even, in, even those who are, experience the, the radiance of the light of the sun don't always experience his warmth. But generally speaking, when we experience his glory, it impacts us. It does something to us, and it causes us cause and effect here, it causes us, even as the light of the sun causes me to be warm, God's glory causes me to glorify him. You cannot separate the noun and the verb. You cannot separate God's glory from how it impacts me, and there is something that causes me to want to glorify him. We're going to see more of this. Also, in Isaiah 40, verse 5, we're going to get a little bit more specific here as far as God's glory. <coughs> this is a passage, excuse me, in Isaiah 40, verse 5, that the gospel writers many times quote. And they quote it in length, but Luke is the only one who quotes it all the way to Isaiah 40, verse 5. And it's talking about, it's prophetically referring to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And in verse 5 of Isaiah 40, it says, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, we're not going to do this, but you can. If you were to go to Luke 3, 6, where Luke quotes this passage all the way up and including verse 5, when he translates it from the Hebrew to the Greek, when he does this, he does not use the word glory. He does not use the word glory. Do you know what word he uses? He doesn't say, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. He says, and the salvation of the Lord will be revealed. It will be seen. And in all fairness, Luke, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can conclude, fairly so, that God's glory then, or an aspect of it, would be his salvation. Now, salvation is not necessarily seen. It is something spiritual. It takes place in the heart. But when God radiates his glory, it is not always something that is unseen. But we do know now, Romans 8, it refers to the character of Christ. We know that when we experience his glory, it causes us to glorify him. We read here in Isaiah and in Luke 3 that God's glory includes God's salvation. That is, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin in the sinner's life, they repent and call upon the name of the Lord. He then washes away their sins. He renews their minds. He places them in the righteousness of Christ as opposed to their own. They are justified and they are completely cleansed from their sin and set free from that bondage. And now by the power of the spirit have the ability anyway to walk away from sin which is a lifelong process of learning how to do that. But that is salvation. That is what all will see. That's what Luke tells us. Now turn to John 2.11. John 2.11, we see another element of God's glory. <coughs> and this is just after Jesus turned the water into wine. 
his first miracle. The Gnostic Gospels are mistaken. Jesus' first miracle was not while he was sitting down on the bank of a river or stream, taking clay and forming pigeons and throwing them up in the air, and they turned into real pigeons. Some Gospels say that that was Jesus' first miracle. I I I believe he was the age of 12. No, Jesus' first miracle when he was was when he was about 30 years of age and he began to reveal himself as the son of man, son of God, to men. Now, he turns the water into wine and in verse 11, John 2 says, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You see, glory, Jesus' glory, impacted his disciples, and what did they do? They followed him. They followed him. They they took note. This was a miracle. Something's up with this guy. This guy, God works through him. And I'm not saying that right here they understood exactly who Jesus was, but they're getting a better clue. But it says here that by Jesus doing this miracle, he revealed his glory you see that so i'm going to say salvation would be a miracle but it's something that we don't see it takes place in the heart and it's god's it's god's glory radiating in a person's life but his manifest glory that is his visible glory is seen in things like miracles so we're beginning to see now that this word glory really is quite broad. It impacts us. It causes us to worship him. If you were to go to Exodus 33, you would see something in addition to all of this. And then there's probably other things. I just don't have time to to spend talking about all the aspects of God's glory. But I think this is going to be enough so that as we move forward, we're going to we're going to get a good grasp on this concept of glory and how it then is manifested in our minds. And, and even should it be. But in Ezekiel, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he is asking God for his presence. Now, the Hebrew is actually his face, but it is rightly translated by many versions, presence. And so this is his request. I want your presence to go with us. And then he says, show me your glory. Do you remember this scene? God puts him in a cleft of the rock, and he puts his hand over the cleft of the rock until he has passed by, and then he sees the backside of God. The presence of God is therefore the veiled glory of God, and he is equating this. So I think it's fair to say God's glory is also his presence. You see, when when, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's not as if it nails it down. It is what they call an abstract noun. Can you please define love for me? That's an abstract noun. None of us will be able to truly define love, but we know it when we see it, when we experience it, right? And it is the same with God's glory. Now, I want us to talk about what's commonly called God's manifest glory. And by his manifest glory, that is something that we see, something that... God reveals and it takes the blinders off our eyes. It allows us to see God's glory. And there's several instances. There would be Exodus chapter 40. You can turn there with me. I'm only going to ref- I'm going to read from some and only reference others. But in Exodus chapter 40, the latter part of Exodus God has been giving Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And with through Bezalel and Ohaliab, they have their, their craftsmen filled with the spirit to craft. And they, they build and craft this tabernacle 
and now they are dedicating it to the Lord. And in verse 40, uh, excuse me, verse 34, it says, then, after they had finished their work, then the cloud. What many times people call the glory cloud that had been leading Israel, cloud by day, and then there was a fire in that pillar of cloud at night to lead them. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so in this, when they're done and they're going to dedicate the tabernacle, wherein God is supposed to dwell in the Holy of Holies, seated upon the mercy seat, the, the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? A, a little bit skewed on their perspective in, in many points, but we get it. God's glory, God's presence is there in the Holy of Holies. When it's dedicated, the, the cloud of God comes upon it. His glory fills the tabernacle, and they cannot enter into it. We see this happening again. In 2 Chronicles 5.14, if you're taking notes, also chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to read them. This is now Solomon's temple. It replaces the tabernacle. Solomon built this elaborate, huge uh, temple on this plot of land, and it's the, the courtyards are huge, the temple is huge, ornate gold overlay in all of the interior, and it's absolutely marvelous. And when he is dedicating it with this huge assembly, it says the, the cloud of God came upon the temple and his glory so filled the temple, the priests could not minister before, the, before God. After Solomon's temple was destroyed, the children of Israel came back to the Holy Land and they rebuilt the temple. Theologians call this Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel's temple, over several hundred years, began to get somewhat worn down. And King Herod, during the time of Jesus, King Herod came along in about 19 BC, began to reconstruct, repair, and actually add on to Zerubbabel's temple. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because in Haggai chapter 2, we read about this second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets of the exiles when they came back from Babylon. Zerubbabel was the governor, the leader, actually a descendant of David. Joshua was the high priest. Haggai and Zechariah were main prophets speaking to and encouraging the people. And we see in Haggai chapter 2, in verse 7, he says, I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. Now, who do you suppose that is? None other than Jesus. To this temple. And he says, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. The significance of this is that when they were building this temple, they had to first, of course, lay the foundation. And all the young people were just excited. We finally laid the foundation. That's a work in itself. Now they have to build the structure, but they laid the foundation. Everything is going to go on this foundation. And, and, and so many are rejoicing, but in the midst of all of this rejoicing, you hear the mourning, the weeping of those who remember the glory of Solomon's temple, which means these people are probably 90 years old, because that was well over 70 plus years ago, 80. And his children they saw Solomon's temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. It was huge. It was glorious. It was gold inlaid. So ornate. Cherubs carved in the walls. Absolutely beautiful. But the foundation was much larger. And they remember this. And they begin to weep and to wail. 
because now a much smaller version has been built. But Haggai, in, in view of this, he says, but wait, wait, you guys need to hear this. The glory of this temple, Zerubbabel's, and then the repairs and extensions of, that Herod brings, that is the temple that Jesus came to, proclaimed the gospel, healed the sick. Just outside of its gates, he was crucified, buried in a nearby tomb, raised from the dead. The glory of this present temple will far surpass the glory of the former one. This temple will be much more glorious. Why? Because it is going to be Jesus himself that will come to this temple. And it is in this way, by the presence of Jesus, God says, I will fill this house with my glory. We could turn to Ezekiel 43, verses 4 to 5, chapter 44, verse 4. And now Ezekiel's temple, and there's, there's only four temples that are mentioned in Scripture. This last one, I believe, is very prophetic, not for some future age, but for this age, it would be that temple is Christ himself and the church. And it says in those passages that I just quoted to you, it says is God or, or the angel is kind of leading Ezekiel around and he's now inside the court. It says the glory of God came in through the east gate and rested upon the temple and so filled it. In chapter 44, verse 4, it says that Ezekiel fell to the ground and worshiped God. And I'm going to suggest to you that he is prophetically seeing the glory of God resting upon Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, and he can do nothing else in view of God's glory than to glorify him. Now, when we were looking at it in Exodus 34, where Moses has the opportunity to see the glory of God, which in essence is the presence of God, the veiled glory of God, when the Lord walks by, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and loving God. And he begins to reveal who he is. And when he is done, and it's only a few verses long, it says, and Moses fell down and worshiped God. Do you see, people, when, when people encounter the glory of God, they want to glorify God. It undoes them. Isaiah, when he beholds the glory of the Lord, and as his train fills the temple, different kind of train, not that choo-choo kind, and it's just his robe, it fills the temple, and it's a picture of, it, John tells us in chapter 12, it is a picture of Jesus's glory. Isaiah was beholding Jesus and his glory, and his response is, woe am I. I am undone. I am ruined, as other versions say. And it impacted him. And it undid him. Church, there's something about the glory of God that changes us when we experience it. Now, why am I talking about all of this? What does it have to do with Powerline or any local church for that matter? What does this glory have to do? Are, are, are we to expect suddenly a pillar of cloud and fire if it's nighttime in our midst? Let's look at something here. We just saw four instances in which God came upon his dwelling place. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and the future temple, which is Christ and his church. And the glory of God filled each one. And I'm going to suggest to you that in order for God's glory to fill the earth, big picture, he must fill this church and other churches throughout the world. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that individually, 
Every single believer in Jesus Christ experiences the presence of God. Now, there's several scripture verses that we could look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it, ta- it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? And yet earlier, he, uses, he, he talks about you are the temple of God. You plural, and God, by his Spirit, dwells in you or among you. And in Ephesians chapter 2, at the very end, he says, you are a holy, you are rising to become, you plural, as a church. And I would say to you, church, you are rising to become a holy temple. Not a lot of holy temples, but together corporately, a holy temple in which God lives by his spirit. God is here amongst us, corporate, uh, as we're gathering corporately, his presence is here. So what I'm saying is this individually the spirit of god is in me and yet also corporately when we come together the spirit of god is present as well now he is not simply present because he's in me the spirit of god is not just simply here because he's in your hearts he is yes in your hearts but he is here corporately now if you were to look at matthew chapter 18 Let me give you the verse here. (coughs) Okay, so I had it written down somewhere. Here we go, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. He says, where two or more are gathered together, watching a football game. No, no. In my name. So there's purpose. They're gathering in his name for a purpose. There will I be in their midst. In their midst. Not just simply in them, but in their midst. Write this verse down. Psalm 22, verse 3. Now, if you have the NIV, I extend apologies to you because the NIV, and and, and it, 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 translates it very differently than just about every version of the Bible. And about every version of the Bible reads this way. That God is enthroned upon or seated upon or tabernacled upon the praises of Israel. The NIV does not read that way. But its literal translation is that when Israel or the people of God, Jesus' local church, when we gather together, He is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Not just that he's inside of us. Yes, that is true. But we, rising to become a holy temple in the Lord, he dwells in our midst by his spirit. He is here. The presence of Jesus is here right now. Now, I want to ask you this. If Jesus suddenly appeared right here next to me in front of you, what do you think he would do? What do you think he would do? Just to think about that for a moment. If Jesus were to appear right before us, what do you think he would do? Now, I'm going to make a guess here. I don't think he would stand up there and berate you. That is not the heart of God. But he instead would go to you individually, and he would probably touch you, even as he did when he was in his earthly ministry. And he would say, be healed. Jesus name the heartache that you're experiencing today I want to heal you of that you've taken a hold of a lie please don't believe that lie here here drink deeply of my truth because it's that truth that will set you free so right now let me heal you by the authority which by the way he has all authority in heaven on earth he would heal I can only imagine that if he were here right now, not only would he heal you of your your, your heartaches, but he would heal you physically. I don't know if he would heal all of you or not, but he, he would heal physically. Maybe some of us that are still wandering, maybe we have strayed from the truth. He would come up to you and speak to you face to face. And he would say, come follow me. 
Are you done wandering in your little desert there? It is dry. There is no hope. And I ask you, I implore you, come follow me. Fall in love with me again. Let me call you back to me, to Jesus. And if you have never experienced the love of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the power of his resurrection that raises you from death to life, he would ask you, are you willing to trust in me now, today? If you would just call upon me, I will come into you and I will change you and wash away your sins and I will give you a new, a new life. That's, I think, what Jesus would do. He may do some other things, but I think that's what Jesus would do. Now, you probably knew where I was going with. Here's the reality. You see, Jesus is here. He is here. No, he's not just inside of me. He is here. And his goal is to, to radiate his glory. And sometimes we will see this glory, what we call his manifest glory, and sometimes we will not, and it will be, as it were, hidden. And he will rescue the lost, and he will heal the hurting uh, heart. Because this is his heart. This is his desire. To, he, wants to, he wants to shine his glory here when we gather together because he wants to do it throughout this world. But it's got to, in the small picture, happen here. Because if it doesn't happen here, if it's not happening in his church, it will not happen worldwide. And God's promises, sure, church. Even as Moses lives, he said this, and the glory of the Lord will fill this earth. So now, what is it when we look in the New Testament? Do we see this presence of Christ? Do we see his glory reveal what we'll call his manifest presence or just shining in people's hearts and healing and rescuing, saving? Do we see any semblance of this manifestation of God's glory so that when we encounter it and experience it, it would be as if we would fall to our knees and we would say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Even as Moses did on Mount Sinai when he encountered the glory of God. There would be many examples that we could give. We could go to Acts 4, verse 31, and I'm only going to reference it. But after they were persecuted, the apostles, and I imagine that there were others, brothers and in the Lord, gathered there. They shared what had happened. They prayed. And after they prayed, it says, and God shook the house in which they were gathered, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They had an encounter with the glory of God, with the presence of Jesus himself, and it manifested itself. Now, I'm not saying that God, every time we gather together, he's going to shake this building. I'm sure the landlord would not appreciate that. But I will say it has happened. It happened only one time in the New Testament that I'm aware of. But unusual things like this can happen. But they were filled with the Spirit. And I think personally there was something more, a reason, if you will, why God shook that house. It was very prophetic. If you read the next chapter, he shakes his church. Ananias and Sapphira are judged. You may remember that. But I believe it's very prophetic as it looks. Whatever the reason is, this is what God did. This is how he manifested his glory. Now, Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 14. We're just going to spend the rest of our time here. Again, there are other passages we could look at. I am going to focus on these few, and I want us to see something here, and I want, us to ex I want to extend some challenges to us in our remaining minutes together. Chapter 14 is a picture of, of the church gathered together and specifically the Corinthian church gathered together 
And as they're gathered together, the Spirit of God moves among them. Now that's somewhat cliche-ish, I realize. But what I mean by that is spiritual gifts are being manifested. There's prophecies, instructions. There are tongues and interpretations. There are revelations given by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12 lists 11 manifestations of the Spirit. They are not exhaustive. That's not Paul's purpose. There are more. But this is what happens when the Spirit of God moves. And I'm going to suggest to you this, that in 1 Corinthians 14, this is a manifestation of God's glory. Jesus' presence is here. The Spirit of God is moving. And you know what? In verse 26, it says, what then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, like we are here today and Wednesdays, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, here's my point. You see, through these spiritual gifts, I'm going to call them miracles. In our present day, there's a group of people called cessationists that don't believe that God does extraordinary gifts. and manifests The, the, the Spirit does not manifest himself with what they call extraordinary gifts. And I would say, I'm sorry, but we're defrauding God's word when we suggest that therefore there are some gifts that are not extraordinary. Why are we separating the spiritual gifts, extraordinary and ordinary? And, and I think, honestly, church, and I want to be careful here, it's because as men, women, we want to be able, we want to be able to operate in our own strength, in our own skills, in our own abilities. We don't want that you might call it the X factor, I don't know, that, that element that's unpredictable. We don't like it. We don't like it when the Spirit of God does certain things and now we've got to weigh prophetic words. And, and so there is this tendency to limit what God can do in our midst. But I'm going to suggest to you, the spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit, of God's glory. And if Jesus were here, he might walk up to you and give you a word of truth that would, that would pierce your spirit and so revive and enliven you. But he may not do that physically in our midst. But you know what he will do? Is that the Spirit of God, knowing the heart of Jesus, would stir you up and you would give that word. This is the glory of God in our midst. And so when we come together, our desire is, God, manifest your presence, your glory through me today to build up, to strengthen the body of Christ. Now on Sundays, generally, Personal ministry is, is more limited than on a Wednesday night where we're in a group setting, where we divide up into prayer and ministry um, there, for praise and prayer, like this past Wednesday, altar call opportunities, ministry opportunities. There, there, there's generally a, a giving of the word Sunday mornings and corporate worship. But even in the context of corporate worship, God may call you to give another person a word of encouragement. Would you do that? But in order to, you have to come and say, okay, God, I am here to give. I am here to reflect the glory of God in our midst. How would you lead me to do that? Do you follow me? Now let's back up two verses to verse 24. It says, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, giving a word of the Lord, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, that is, by what they're saying. 
They're obviously speaking about the gospel and the triumph of the gospel and the, the, the precious blood of Christ that washes away sins and how apart from Christ, there is no life. And, and as these words, prophetic words are coming forth, this inquirer, this unbeliever is cut to the heart. And he goes on in verse 25, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. Not necessarily that he stands up and in the midst of the congregation starts confessing all of his sins, but he realizes, oh my goodness, what they're saying, that's me. And what he thought, the, all, the, his sinful nature, his corruption that's in him and is controlling him, what he thought was secret is obviously not. And the secrets of his heart are revealed. Now listen to what happens here as the glory of God impacts this person. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is truly, really, surely among you. So here's what I'm suggesting. That when we gather corporately, however God chooses to manifest his glory, he is, his, his goal is to strengthen the church and for the lost to encounter this glory and bring them to this place where Paul is not giving like a hypothetical example that would never happen to him. Oh my goodness, of how, why on earth would an unbeliever fall on their knees and say, surely God is among you? Well, he gives that example because it happens. It happened in his experience, no doubt, many times. So let's not just read this and say, well, you know, that's just like a hypothetical, over-exaggerated example. Yeah, it's not going to really happen. Well, why not? Because when we encounter the glory of God, it impacts us. It causes me to glorify him. God, you are here. So when we gather together, we come together with expectation. We come together with this sense, God's glory. Let me back up. We come together expecting the presence of Jesus to be here. Why? Because that is his promise. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. When we're worshiping him, he is tabernacled, seated as king, ruling as king upon our praises. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that I fully understand that. I just know that that's the, that's the case. He is here, and being here, he wants to shine forth, radiate his glory, who he is. Even as the sun radiates light and warmth, Jesus' purpose, seated, enthroned amongst us, his purpose is to radiate his glory and impact us so that we're compelled to glorify him. He's going to do it through miracles. He's going to do it through salvations. He's going to do it through spiritual gifts. He could even shake this building if, if that's what he would so choose. That's up to him. God has manifested himself in worldwide, or excuse me, not worldwide, but in local revivals throughout history. We have yet to see a global revival in, in church history. But we've seen pockets of revival, the most recent of which uh, perhaps that you, you're familiar with would be the Brownsville revival, a large one. But God's purpose in these revivals is to manifest his glory, to radiate his glory. His goal is to change people's lives. Now, in some of these, people have actually experienced things like laughter. Now, laughter can get out of hand, and, but I have, I have spoken with people who, when the Spirit of God touched them, they were so lifted up like a burden lifted from their shoulders and were filled with such joy, their human response was laughter. 
Now, if that becomes disruptive, because in 1 Corinthians 14, as we're looking here, it says all things must be done decently in order. There'd be no problem having that person continue to laugh and going into the cry room. In the same way, in other revivals, they have, people have come to altars and they have began to weep and to wail so loudly that it can be disruptive. Were they just simply operating the flesh? Is that the devil? Well, good luck, devil, in trying to win that soul because he's just now giving his heart to Christ. And, and so there is this human element in which we, we are overwhelmed by the presence of God. You can look at Daniel. You can look at Ezekiel. You can look at, um, I, I've got a couple of others listed here. Uh, even those who came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who are you looking for, he asks, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, ego eimi, I am. Now, implying I am he, but he is saying, ego eimi, which is the covenantal name Yahweh, I am. And it says, and they fell backwards to the ground. What, were they sur so surprised they tripped over some tree roots? Obviously not. They encountered the glory of the Son of God, and it overwhelmed them. If God wants to manifest himself in such a way that it deeply impacts us in our emotions as well, if it becomes disruptive, we can easily take them into the cry room, or we would then call it the crying out room as they're praying. But the truth is, the, the glory of God is manifesting himself. And he has done this, church, he has done this in every single revival. There have always been questions. Whoa, that seems a little excessive. I could talk about the Toronto blessing in which people actually began to, yes, bark. Now, I think John Wimber was wise because it was a vineyard church, and he went to them and he cautioned them, please, this is simply a human manifestation. And John Wimber's goal was not to say, you know, God is not changing people's lives here, because of course he was. God was doing some amazing thing, miracles in their midst. People were getting saved. And how they expressed that, for some of them, they began barking. So John Wimber brought a word of correction to them and he said, look, I understand that when you experience the presence of God, it undoes you, including you yourself emotionally. But this, even as the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, when God is working in you, you do not have to do this because this is getting disruptive. And so he brought a word of rebuke to them. My only purpose in bringing this up is that people may respond emotionally to things, even falling down in what we call being slain in the spirit. Daniel says all of his energy left him. He was overwhelmed by fear and he was overwhelmed by, um, ah, I'm trying to remember the word here, um, not anxiety. Um, well, for some reason, the, the word just left me, but it was another emotion. And it just so overwhelmed him. When the angel said, stand to your feet, he said, I cannot. I have no energy in me. And the angel reached down and lifted him up, and immediately he received strength. That was Daniel's physical, emotional experience, encounter with the glory of God in this angel. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that when we come, we should expect Jesus to suddenly appear or for angels to suddenly appear. It's not that that's never happened. It's just that's very rare. I don't think we should come expecting God to shake this building and the, and the landlord would say, thank you very much. But we do come here expecting Jesus to be here in our midst and to radiate his glory however he chooses. Now, I say however he chooses, according to God's word, because some people have looked down upon the laughter revival, and, and I was there. I saw excesses, yes, but I also some, saw some very genuine lives being, or a transformation of lives. We find ourselves in a day in which, for whatever reason, the church tends to get polarized when it comes to something like this. Spiritual gifts, manifestation of God's presence or his glory, polarized, 
And on the one hand, and this is the camp that I grew up in, I'm sorry, but God doesn't do that kind of stuff. We worship him with somberness. Okay, so when Israel was instructed prophetically to clap their hands or to shout unto the Lord with joy, that was somehow out of hand? Well, of course not. But you see, I grew up in that tradition that reacted to the Spirit of God stirring these things up within people. People looked very critically at the laughter revival when Charles Finney was proclaiming the gospel and he would just, he would walk into a factory and as he looked around, people would testify, his eyes would fall upon me and I, there would be so much conviction of sin in my life, I began to weep. So if, if the Spirit of God is moving amongst people and they begin to weep, do we say, I'm sorry, but we don't allow that in this church, okay? We don't allow you to laugh. Nothing that would appear disruptive, no. I mean, it, it's easy. We, if it's disruptive, we can, we can take them back to the cry room or some other place and allow God to continue to minister to them. But on the other hand, in the charismatic renewal, we latch on to everything. If we hear about gold dust falling, we want to be there and catch some. We hear about teeth being filled with gold, we want to be there so that our teeth are filled with gold. We hear about people laughing hilariously. Wow, I want to experience that. When we hear about people being slain in the spirit, man, I want to know what that's like. And so we go and we, we want, we're like these little lap dogs, woo, 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 you know, begging, begging, please, God, I want to be slain in the spirit. Wait a second. Is the church so imbalanced that we seek the sign over the Savior? These things simply point to Jesus. Why are we so enthralled with them? If God wants to do any manifestation that would, that would truly be in accordance with his word, why would we not want to allow God to do that? Because his purpose is to radiate his glory and transform people. And may we experience more and more in which unbelievers, as they're gathered in Jesus' church and experience the presence and power and glory of God, they do fall to their knees and say, oh my word, I am undone. God is truly among you. And they give their hearts to, they cry out to God and calling upon the name of the Lord are saved. You see, when God begins to do that, and as a church, we are balanced, not going to these ridiculous extremes. God's glory is free to be manifested however he chooses. And God's glory is revealed throughout the earth. God does want to do miracles amongst the myth, in the midst of his people. He wants to save souls in the midst of his people. Why do we continually place limits on him? Let me close with this one thought. When Elijah encountered the glory of God on Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, did their little thing of cutting themselves and dancing around and making utter fools of themselves, and nothing happened, Elijah, you know what he did with the water pots of water on the sacrifice, and he looked to heaven. And he, he, in essence, said, okay, God, show him. And the fire of God fell from heaven. And it impacted Ahab. Ahab was on the cusp of giving his heart to the one true God, Yahweh. You, you feel that as you go through. And then Jezebel extinguishes any flicker of flame that was there. God did an awesome miracle, sending fire from heaven. Elijah gets discouraged, though. You can tell he is wanting a personal revival. He goes to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. He fasts for 40 days, just like Moses. He is seeking a personal revival. He hides himself in a cleft of the rock, just like God did for Moses. And God begins to speak to him, why are you here? 
And he shares this little woeful story and asks him again, why are you here? And God does something. He sends a tornado. Your version might say mighty wind, but it rips the rocks apart. So tornado, okay. Um, fire, an earthquake, and it says God was not in any of this. You mean God wasn't in the fire this time? No. Nope. And then very quietly, God speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. Forty days earlier, God did an awesome miracle, sending fire from heaven. But on that day, there was a still, small voice. When we seek the presence of God, and we are desiring God to truly change us through his word, worship, gifts of the spirit, all kinds of manifestations, miracles, salvations, all of these things. As you go, anointed by Jesus himself to do the work of Jesus and minister truth to others in the church or lay hands on and pray for them, God's glory comes. Lives are transformed, but they are done, whether it is through the fire from heaven or the still, small voice. So can you stand with me and pray with me? If God is going to fill this earth with his glory, he is going to do it here and there and there and everywhere, thousands upon thousands of local expressions of the body of Christ experiencing the glory of God. Can we cut the lights, please, brother? Father, I want to thank you for your presence here right now in our midst. In our worship, you were enthroned. And through the word, your spirit, I believe, was speaking and bringing certain truths home to individuals. And Father, if you choose to heal, then I am asking that you would heal, physically heal, that you would speak life into dry bones, and you would revive hearts that are hurting in Jesus' name. Because this is what you do, God. And we are inviting you every time we meet would you show up in this way and would you take control and would you speak through your people and would you minister through your people and would you change lives and as truth goes out, bring conviction to the lost sinner that they would find Christ that day. We want you, Jesus, not just here in my life. And you will never leave me or forsake me but here in our midst, even as you would if you were physically here ministering in person. So I'm asking God, please, do whatever you need to do. If you need to undo us, if you need to call straying hearts back to you, we invite you to do that, God. Right now.